what I'm excited to share today from Acts. Um, first, I would love to just say that, um, that um, this may be a challenging uh, sermon. There might be parts that make you feel uncomfortable, maybe make you feel like, ooh. Um, I want you to know, one, I'm going to try to use the words us and we as much as possible because I'm very much a part of all of this, that all of this is going to apply to me just as much to you, probably more. Um, I'm the chief among sinners in the room, so I, I totally get it. Um, I also know that I don't know where you're coming from. Most of the people in the room, I don't know, you know what you're involved in or what's going on in your life. So just keep that in mind as I'm talking. Um, but this sermon is titled Word and Deed. We're going to be in Acts 14. Before we start uh, with the scripture, I'm going to talk a little bit about the pandemic. I know we're exhausted about talking about the pandemic. We wish no one would ever talk about it again. Uh, but it helps me illustrate my point, so I'm going to talk about it. Um, at the beginning of the pandemic, um, obviously, things were very hard for everyone. It was very uncertain. I know for Young Life, it was really hard to, to jump onto Zoom. I'm sure that uh, Josh with the youth program was also doing the same thing and uh, trying to run a, a Zoom event for high school kids or middle school kids is the worst. Um, it's impossible. It was kind of fun for like half a second, and then we were like, this is terrible. Uh, it was not fun. Um, I also know that there might be people in the room who maybe had someone in their family get really sick from the pandemic, or maybe had someone they know uh, pass away, and I'm really sorry about that. Um, for Rachel, my wife and I, at the beginning of the pandemic, it definitely was hard. It was definitely uncertain. But for us, there was a little bit of it that was kind of nice in that our life typically, you know, before the pandemic was we were out three, four, five nights a week doing Young Life stuff. We were at a game or we were having club or we were doing leadership with our leaders. There's all kinds of stuff we could be at. And so we were out a lot. And so it was a little bit nice in the beginning to have kind of a break to be like, you can't go anywhere. You can't go out every single night. And so we got to do all the stuff that, um, that you know, young couples get to do when they first get married that we hadn't really been able to do, which is spend time together every night to like pick a show and like watch that show and finish that show and start a new show. Like we, we hadn't really been able to do a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, but what we realized pretty quickly is that it was really boring for us. Like we were super stagnant. Like it was fun. And we were, we were really lucky. Like my wife went to work. She's a nurse practitioner. So she went to work in the day. So we were like locked in a room together for like all hours of the day. We like had time to be apart, which is really good for us. Um, but we got really, really bored. And we realized pretty quickly that our faith, both of us, individually and together, was really stagnant. That we were not growing in Christ. That it was probably the most stagnant we've been maybe in years, maybe ever. Um, and that's because we weren't able to do the ministry that we wanted to do. We weren't able to get out and give our lives away in the same way we had. Um, it's because suddenly our life was all about us. Like we were constantly just thinking about us and what we were going to do that night, what we are going to eat. And when your life is all about you, that's what you get, you. And I am not that great. Um, and so we were kind of just stuck worrying about ourselves. Um, I don't know if you felt that way, but it's definitely how we felt. Um, that's why I love, I do love ministries. I love crew, IV, Young Life. I love organized ministries that kind of help push you out to go do stuff. Um, and so when we couldn't do that, it was really hard. So with that in mind, we're going to go to Acts 14. Let me give you a little bit of context. This is Paul and Barnabas. They are traveling around the Mediterranean. Um, you know that. They're going to different cities, and they're telling people about Jesus. And there's a lot of wonderful things that are happening. Um, what they would usually do, pretty much always, is they would go to a city, and they would go to a synagogue. 
and they would try to, to talk to Jewish people, and they would, they would go to the synagogue, and they would communicate with Jewish people, and they would try to kind of argue with them. You know, obviously, they, they have sort of a, a foundation there of believing a lot of what we believe, but then there's the extra step of Jesus and who he was, and they're trying to convince them of that. There might also be Gentiles at the synagogue. They're called God-fearers. Um, so these are Gentiles who may be converted to Judaism, um, but they weren't really allowed fully to be, you know, to be Jewish because they weren't necessarily Israelites. Um, and so these are the people that they would typically go and talk to. Um, what we're going to see at Lystra, which is where we're going to primarily focus, is that this is the first time that Christians are actually ministering to Gentiles who have no idea what's going on. They live in a pluralistic society, kind of like ours. So they, they believe in all kinds of gods. You know, they, they believe in all kinds of things. They don't believe in one God. They believe in a whole bunch of them, or maybe none. And this is the first time that Christians are really going and ministering to those folks. Um, and so today we're going to focus on Lystra. The two cities before Lystra were Antioch and Iconium, both of which um, they were chased out of. Um, so they were literally chased out of those places. In fact, the last city they had gone to, they tried to stone them. So the last place they had gone to, they tried to kill them, which usually for me, like if someone tried to kill me, I'd be like, great, I'm all done. I'm going to go home and watch Netflix. But Paul and Barnabas said, no, we're just going to go to the next city and hope they don't try to kill us there. Um, and so that's what they do. So they go to Lystra. And so we're starting in Acts 14, verse 8. And it says this, In Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. But when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd, shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made up the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. I'm going to move this thing because I think that noise is me. We're okay? Um, awesome. So when we read this, uh, the, the, the title is going to be Word and Deed, and the question we're going to answer is, how should we do ministry? How should we do ministry? Um, I say we because I think sometimes we think of ministry, and we think of the word minister, and we think of pastors and the people up front, and them ministering to people. Um, but I don't know that that's exactly how it works. Um, Jose's a pastor, Bob's a pastor, I'm not a pastor, and there's definitely weight that comes with that. Um, but I think that we all are involved in ministry. We all have a role in that. We all have a role to play. And not only is it, is it 
uh, our duty sort of as children of God to play that role, but it's also the best way for us to grow in Christ, which we're going to talk about more. And so how should we do ministry? First, with confidence and purpose. Um, When we see what Paul has done, Paul has a mission, right? He's not just staying put where he is, waiting for people to come to him. He goes to all these different cities to talk to different people. He's getting out of his comfort zone. He's going around the Mediterranean with with an idea, with a purpose. I think we see this and we go, oh yeah, Paul did that. We maybe think of missionaries and oh, they go over there. But do you know that you can be a missionary where you are now? That where you are right now, whatever you're involved in, school, work, whatever it is, you can be a missionary. You can have purpose and think about who do I want to minister to next? Um, One of my favorite things we do, again, I work with Young Life. Um, I'm not going to plug Young Life the whole time, but it is what I know and love, so I'm going to talk about it. Um, one of the th- my favorite things we do in Young Life is a lot of times we, at campaigners where we have a Bible study of kids who know Christ or maybe are trying to know Christ, we will often make lists of kids that we want to see come to club or come to camp. And we pray for those kids by name. And the best thing is when you get to like check off their name, like they came, like how cool is that that they came? Um, or they showed up, or maybe they met Christ, and how awesome is that? They have purpose. Um, Paul had a purpose going to these cities. He didn't wait for it to come to him. We often do. I think often we think of ministry. We all want to tell somebody about Jesus, right? But we're kind of waiting for the perfect person to show up and be like, hey, will you tell me about this person named Jesus? And that's not usually how it happens. Usually, like, you have to go to them. Ask them questions. Ask them about their life. So he has purpose. Um, We experience uh, this lame man, right, who, who can't walk. He's broken. Um, you know this, you've talked about this before to people, but back then they believed that if you were you know, lame, you had a, uh, an infirmary or a dis- infirmity or a disability, that's because you sinned or someone in your family sinned. And so there wasn't really any like, pity or help for folks like that. They just thought, you did that to yourself, we're just going to leave you there. Um, so he sat there day after day, his whole life, probably sore all over, definitely depressed, watching people walk by doing the very thing that he wanted to do. And that's what he did every single day. But he hears Paul talking and something in him stirs and he starts to have some faith. Something that Paul says clicks with him. He starts to have faith. And Paul um, says, you get up and he heals him. Um, But the way Paul does it is interesting to me. Again, I think sometimes we read these, these passages and we think, oh yeah, Paul healed him, whatever, no big deal. First off, Paul healed him, which is a huge deal. But he also does it loudly, it says. He looks at him and he yells at him, you get up in front of everybody. Um, back then, there was a lot of other people trying to do similar things. They were pretending to be the Messiah, or they were pretending to heal people and do supernatural things, and they would like kind of work it out among the crowd, or they would whisper and make it kind of secret and be like, oh, I healed him, but like no one really saw what happened. It didn't happen. Paul does it in front of everybody because he's confident of what God can do. In front of everybody, he's like, you get up, and the guy does. He's confident of it. Um, a small aside, wouldn't it have been weird if the man that Paul had healed had stayed sitting? Like, he could have heard him and been like, oh, this is very interesting, and Paul could have said, okay, you can stand up now. And he said, no, I think I'm going to stay here. That would have been so confusing, so weird. Um, as, if, as if he hadn't been redeemed by the blood of Christ. I think sometimes we stay sitting. Or we sit back down. Or some of us never got up. Um, 
think for a minute maybe where you are in that. And there's times, again, we do this. There's times that I sit back down and pretend like I haven't been redeemed. But we have. We're going to come back to that. So how should we do ministry with confidence and purpose? We should do it in word and in deed. In word, Paul is preaching, right? He's going around these places and he's preaching. What is he preaching? Um, he's preaching the gospel. What's the gospel? Sometimes we don't necessarily know. The gospel is that Jesus Christ came down to pour out his life for us and to save us from our sin. It is that simple. Um, with Young Life, a lot of times I will train new leaders. Sometimes they're freshmen in college or maybe they're not in college and they're doing something else with their life. And I'll train new leaders, and a lot of times we'll get to this part where we talk about, you know, how do you kind of communicate the gospel, how do you talk to them? And usually leaders are excited to be with students. They're excited to, you know, be at Young Life Camp, all that kind of stuff. And then they get nervous about, I don't feel like I know enough. I don't feel like I know enough about the Bible, or I don't think I can explain enough. Um, I can't do it as well as I saw my leader do it or whatever. Um, and so they're nervous. Um, and what I tell them is that the gospel is that Jesus Christ came down to pour out his life for us to save us from our sin. If you know that, then you know enough. You know enough to be able to talk to somebody about your faith. You know what God's done for you, and that's all you need. We see it time and time again in Scripture, right? You see the guy who had a legion of demons in him, who was, who was in the graveyard chained up, at the end of that story, the demons are gone. He's in his right mind. He wants to go with Jesus. Jesus says, no, you're going to stay here and you're going to tell 10 cities about me. And he does. He doesn't stay for a week and go through like the training process. He doesn't like go through seminary. He just says, go tell them what I did for you. You see what the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, who, who was an outcast in her own society and in every society. And at the end of that story, she's going back to her town to tell them what Jesus did. And the entire town comes to see him. Again, not somebody that Jesus sat down with and told exactly what to say. You know enough because you know what God's done for you. And telling other people about it reminds you of it. So you know enough. Um, we should also minister in deed. Um, Paul doesn't just tell him. He doesn't just say the gospel to him, but he shows him the gospel. He heals him. Every time there's a healing in the Bible is a reminder of what God has done for us. Um, that these people don't necessarily deserve to be healed, but they are healed. That we don't deserve um, to be healed, but we are. Um, that we are redeemed by grace and grace alone. And it's a reminder of that. And so he heals this man. He doesn't just tell him, he heals him. We should embody the gospel for the needs of our neighbors. And that's not always a miracle, right? Like I've not personally ever healed another person. Maybe you have. I would love to hear about that. Um, but I've never done it. It doesn't have to be a miracle, um, but we should look different than other people. When people hurt us, we should respond differently than people who don't know Christ. When people make us angry, we should respond differently than people who don't know Christ. Um, when we're confused or upset or something is hard happening in our life, we should look differently when we respond. Um, and I'm not saying anyone's perfect. I certainly am not. I get angry and respond poorly, but we should try not to. We should look differently if we believe what Christ has done for us. Um, we should go out of our way as well. Um, again, that purpose thing. Who are people maybe that you work around with that you can go out of your way um, to show them the gospel? Um, to show them what God has done for you by the way you treat them. 
Um, awesome. We're cruising through. How else do we do ministry? We should meet them where they're at. Um, this is, again, something that we say a lot in Young Life, but not just Young Life. Paul meets these folks where they're at. How does he do that? Uh, well, again, it's a pluralistic society, so people believe in all kinds of things. They don't necessarily believe in God there. They might believe in many gods or no gods. It's very similar to America right now. Um, you know this. America is getting more and more secularized every day. So the people you interact with don't necessarily know what you're talking about when you talk about Jesus or Christianity or the Bible. They don't necessarily know. Um, it's a pluralistic society. And these folks say, the gods have come down to us, right? They say, you are Hermes and you are Zeus and you've come down to us. Uh, which is funny to me that they just start like claiming who they are when they have said nothing about Zeus or Hermes or anything like that. Just, you guys are Zeus and Hermes, obviously. Um, you've come down to us. Which is ironic because God did come down to us. Um, one God came down to us. Our God came down as Jesus Christ. And so you guys have come down to us. And how do they respond? Paul and Barnabas tear their clothes and run into the crowd. They rend their clothes. They tear them. Um, back then, and still to this day in the Jewish culture, tearing your clothes was a sign of grief, of mourning. They would do it at funerals when they were unbelievably upset. And so Paul and Barnabas weren't just like, whoa, you guys are wrong. They were like ripping their clothes, mourning, grieving the fact that people have confused them with God. More than the fact that people have made them equals to God. That's how upset they are by it. Um, I'm not totally sure that that's how I would have reacted, if I'm honest. Um, imagine maybe you're at work and you're a part of a project and you don't really do that much to help the project, but it succeeds because somebody else did a lot of work and they say, hey, we want you to now be the CEO of our company. And you kind of feel a little bit bad because someone else did all the work and you didn't really do any work, but it's not hard to say, I mean, I did some work. You know, like, I, you know, I've helped before. So, like, why not? Paul and Barnabas don't think about that for a second. They can't believe they're being equated with God. They tear their clothes because of it. Um, we pretend like we don't want power until power is offered to us. I think sometimes we pretend like we don't want comfort we're willing to be uncomfortable until suddenly we are comfortable. And then we really don't want to be uncomfortable. We pretend like we really, really want to sacrifice for the Lord until we're really being asked to sacrifice for the Lord. And it's right there in front of us. And our life is pretty good. And that's when it's the hardest. Um, so how else do they meet them where they're at? They run into the crowd. This is kind of a small detail, but I think an important one. Um, they say all this stuff about Paul and Hermes, your Zeus, your, your uh, Hermes. They're, they're so convinced of it that even the priest of Zeus, he would think would be the first person to be like, wait, this isn't Zeus. He like runs in and is like, obviously this is Zeus, and like they want to sacrifice bulls and stuff to them. They don't get up on a stage and address the crowds. They don't like pull together all the really important people and try to like figure it out. They run right into the crowd and start talking to people. This is wrong. You've got it wrong. They start talking to them. Um, I wonder how the world would be different if we did the same thing. If instead of waiting for sort of the people at the top to fix things or the people at the top to have the conversations, if we would just go in and have conversations with other people that are not like us, that disagree with us, what would life look like? Um, 
That's what Paul and Barnabas do. They run into these people and they, they start talking with them. And what's their argument? Because they speak a little bit differently to the Gentiles than they do the Jews, right? We talked about they go to the synagogues and they talk with the Jewish people. And you know this, but you may not think about it all the time, but like that's kind of a part of Christianity is like the whole Old Testament and what the Jews believe. Then there's just like the big part of Jesus that's kind of missing. And so they're, they have sort of a, a framework to talk with them about. But with Gentiles, people who don't know anything about Jesus, don't know what's going on, believe in all kinds of other stuff, they speak differently. It would have been weird if they had come up to the Gentiles and said, you know, hey, you know what Scripture says. You guys are believing all kinds of stuff. Don't you feel bad about yourselves? You know, don't you feel like you're messing it up? You know, what's wrong with you? Because they don't know they're messing anything up. What they said to the Gentiles instead, the way they talk with them, is they say things like this. Are these things working for you? You're, you're following all these other gods, and they're worthless. He calls them idols. He says that these things are worthless, and we are offering you life. Are they working for you? Are they really giving you what you want? Will they last forever? Are they loving you back? No. These things are worthless. They're leaving you empty. What we're offering you is life and life to the full. A God who is alive, who brings life. Um, a God who is giving you good things, even if you don't believe in him. They talk about all the things that God is giving. Even now, God is, is not without testimony. He gives them all these different things. Even the gladness, it says, even the gladness in your hearts. God is giving that to you, even if you don't know him. All the good things, we don't always think about this, all the good things in the world, whether we believe in God or not, are still from God. You've heard about this before too. All truth is, is truth from God. If it's really true, it's from God. So even the things that people who don't believe in Christ are getting that are good things, those are still from God. All good things are from God. And that's what he's saying to them. He reasons with them in a, in a totally different way. He's the only God who will never fail you, and when you fail him, he will forgive you immediately. In fact, he's already forgiven you. Um, what idols are we worshiping in the room? And the word idol is one of those words where you're like, it seems like a crazy word, and like, I don't think I'm worshiping any idols. Like, I don't have any golden calves in my house or anything like that. But like, what are other things that we are going to for life? Um, in young life, there's something we call a talk progression, and typically in a, in a semester, we will go through basically the gospel. And one of the things we will talk about is that there is a need in all of our lives, a hole in our hearts, something that, something that we are constantly trying to fill, you know, and it's supposed to be filled with a relationship with God. That's what it was intended for. But what we fill it with is anything else, you know, you know, maybe it's grades or school or relationships, you know, maybe it's, it's drugs or alcohol or whatever it might be. And I had a friend who was on staff who was talking about this very thing, um, because staff people kind of get used to talking about that sometimes. And uh, my friend led a Bible study on this, and he said, you know, when you are out of high school, you still have the hole in your heart. You're still trying to fill this need. You just fill it with other stuff. It just looks a little bit differently. Sometimes I've realized that it doesn't look any differently, and we're still filling it with the exact same thing. But as you get older, you're still trying to go to something else for life. What is it that you're trying to go to right now? What is it that you're trying to go to that is leaving you empty, that's not going to last? And how can you turn from that and look towards God?
to fill your life with him, to find meaning in him and purpose in him. Um, once you believe in Christ, like you have him forever, I'm not saying like it's a give and take and like sometimes you're in heaven, sometimes you're in hell. Like that's not true. Like once you believe in Christ, he will never let you go. But you still have to wake up and decide, am I going to pursue him today? Am I going to do my own thing? One way is going to be better than the other. What are you going to? Um, Joe Mark spoke a couple weeks ago. He's my boss and a good friend. He's the best. Um, he's one of the best examples I can think of for giving your life away when things are uncomfortable, sacrificing, that kind of thing. Um, you know, he's the regional director for Young Life. Um, his kids no longer go to Tab High School. He has no reason to be there, but he's still a leader there. He still comes to things. He still shows up to club. Um, he was really excited once his kids left that he wouldn't have to have club at his house anymore. He had a hole in his wall that he had to patch up. He got a new couch after like 30 years of having old couches because it wasn't worth it to get a new couch because they just got ruined by uh, high school students. He was excited to have this nice house. And then suddenly we didn't really have a place for club at Tab High School. And I said, Joe, would it be possible to use your house for Young Life Club? And he immediately said, yes, of course. I can't wait. A couple weeks ago, we had club at his house. And Joe, uh, who is awesome, was, was holding a plexiglass covered in peanut butter and Oreos so that students could eat the Oreos off of them. And Oreos are just like dropping all over his carpet getting crushed into his carpet. There's peanut butter on the walls. Like, and he's the biggest smile on his face. Loves giving his life away. Loves sacrificing. I'm sure he would love to use his brand new couch every night and have it be clean and have no problem with it. But I think he gets even more joy out of letting other people use it. Out of giving his time away. Um, so that's a big plug for Joe. Um, but Joe, who's great, Joe gave an analogy recently. The reason I'm talking about Joe, Joe gave an analogy recently at one of our Young Life campaigners of, of a car key. And I thought it was really, really good and, and something that we can all learn from. When you have a car key, you can use a car key for a lot of stuff, right? You could, you could pop a balloon. You could cut a banana in half. You could, like, dig a hole. You could do a bunch of stuff with a car key. But a car key is most powerful, it is most useful, it has the most impact when it's plugged into a car, when it's doing what it was made to do. That's when a car key is, is actually working, is actually being used, when it's doing what it was made to do. Sometimes we repurpose our lives. You could repurpose a car key and do all kinds of stuff with it. And sometimes we do the same thing. We repurpose our life. What are other ways I can use myself? Uh, what are other ways I can use, use things for my benefit? We repurpose our lives when our lives belong to God. We don't think of it that way a lot, but your life, my life, belongs to God. He paid for it. And it's easy to try to repurpose it. But true purpose, true meaning, true life comes from doing the thing that we were made to do which is loving and serving the Lord, having a relationship with him, engaging in a real relationship with him, not waiting for it down the road, but now. Doing what we are made to do. Um, we'll keep going. 
I'm going to read a little bit of the end because you may have forgotten about the Scripture, so I haven't directly read it in a little bit. So this is what Paul and Barnes have said to them. And then the very end happens really fast in like three verses. A lot of things happen. It's like the end of a Netflix show. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. And the next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. So they're like, they go from, you guys are gods. We'll do anything you say. And then a few Jewish people come by and they say, no, they're not. They're terrible. And they say, you guys are totally right. And then they try to kill them. They throw stones at Paul, which is something they used to do. They would stone you, throw rocks at you until you died. And so they try to kill him. They think they've killed him. You know they think they've killed him because they drag him outside of the city. They love Paul and Barnabas when they're doing miracles and doing this exciting stuff. Um, And then when they're actually pointing to the truth, which is Jesus, they don't care anymore. They just wanted Paul and Barnabas for their stuff. Um, We often just want Jesus for his stuff. We just want what he can do for us, the nice things he can say about us. Um, But when he actually asks us to do something to get us out of our comfort zone, it's hard. And sometimes something happens in our life and we're we're quick to pick up a rock. Um, Do we just want Jesus for his stuff? Do we really want him for him? Um, evidently, there were some people in the city who believed. There were some disciples with them or some people that were in the city who actually believed uh, what they were saying. And so they dragged Paul outside because they think he's dead. That's how confused they were. And then the disciples gather around him. It doesn't tell us what they do. This is one of those stories where there's a lot of things they don't tell us. And I'm like, man, I hope one day I get to ask somebody about this. They gather around him. We don't know if they pray for him, if they like cheer for him, or if they're just standing there thinking he's dead, crying. We don't know what they're doing. But Paul uh, gets up. And again, this is one of those times where I would have gotten up and walked away from the city. I would have gone on somewhere else to lay down and rest. Paul stands up, turns around, and goes back into the city that just spit him out, that just tried to kill him, and to kill him in kind of a humiliating way. Like to, to suddenly switch on him and throw rocks at you, like get out of here. He goes right back into that city and he spends the night. Um, I don't know, like if people had dispersed, I expect they probably hadn't dispersed. Like maybe they're still hanging around. He walks right back into them. Um, I read a couple of commentaries on this and some people believe maybe Paul was going in to like prove God's power or like prove himself maybe, like look how strong I am. Like some people think maybe it wasn't that bad, like they didn't hit him with that many rocks, which is surprising to me because they dragged him out thinking he was dead. Um, I think that Paul turned around and went back into the city because he loved the city and because he knew that God loves the city and he wanted them to know that too. And so when he walked back in, after being stoned by them, he walked in And he showed them, look what you've done to me. I love you. God loves you even more. Will you come back home? Will you please come back home? I don't know how you can get more uncomfortable than being stoned by people and then dragged out of the city and then going back in. That seems like 
the most uncomfortable thing you could do, physically, mentally, spiritually. But Paul does it because he loves them. Um, this isn't part of, uh, you know, this is the next part of the scripture that I, that I don't have up here kind of on purpose. Um, and we're going to kind of wrap up with all this stuff, this last little bit. But after this, it says that they go to Derby, And in Derby, they actually have huge success. In all the other cities, they had like a little bit of success. They like made some disciples, and then they like wanted them to leave. In Derby, it's like they crush it. Like a ton of people believe. They don't want them to go anywhere. They had, it's like it's as if you planted a church and it exploded in a weekend, and everyone wanted you to stay forever. Um, but what do Paul and Barnabas do? They go back to Lystra and back to Antioch and back to Iconium. So all these places that have chased them out, tried to kill them, they leave what was really comfortable and a really good setup. And they go back to places that were not comfortable, that were hard, that, that took a toll on them, that they made sacrifices for. Um, ministry often includes sacrifice and suffering. It doesn't require it. God doesn't require us to sacrifice and suffer. God only requires that we believe in how he sacrificed and suffered for us. That's all he requires from you. But to do real ministry often does include some sacrifice and suffering. It requires us to be uncomfortable, to give up something that we don't really want to give up. Another night, uh, or maybe some extra sleep in time, whatever it is. It requires us to give up something. So, how do we do this? Um, that's a lot of information. You've talked about ministry a lot. How do I actually go do ministry? I know I'm supposed to talk to people about Jesus or something, but that seems weird. A great first step, I would say, uh, is to, to get involved at church. Um, how you do ministry includes getting off the ground. Again, it doesn't have to be a big miracle. You don't have to do something crazy, but it does require you to get off of the ground. And, and being a part of uh, sort of organized ministry can help that. That's why I love things like Young Life, Crew, IV, RUF, all those things. I like when there's an organized thing because it helps push you to do something that you probably wouldn't have done otherwise. Um, we don't often see church that way. Church should do the same thing. Like Bob talks about it all the time. We get here because we're, we're supposed to get here. We're supposed to be worshiping the Lord, all that kind of stuff. But it also can be a tool that the Lord uses in the community. And it can be a tool the Lord uses in your heart. So what are ways you can get involved? Uh, do, you, do you play an instrument or sing or something? Uh, we would love to have you in the worship band. Do you not mind getting up a little early? Uh, every Sunday, there's, there are two people who, who make all the coffee in the back. And then uh, Trista walks around with like a giant ruler stick and like make sure all the chairs are perfectly straight. They do it every Sunday before church. Um, there's a lot of people who do the same thing every week. The nursery people often. Um, are there things, ways that you could get involved? Ways that you could help? Um, each week we put the chairs nine high, and then I don't know if this is organized at all, but inevitably like three people will roll the chairs into these closets. Um, is that something that you can help with? Or maybe think about it this way. Is there something that you've really desired from this church? Maybe you've really wanted to be a part of a small group. You can start one. Talk to Bob and Jose. Don't talk to me. I have no authority here. Talk to Bob and Jose and say, hey, I want to I be a part of a small group, but I want to start a small group. 
or I want to help with this. How can I help with that? Or what do you guys need? I would love to be a part of something. You don't have to do it every single week. You can do it every other week or once a month or something like that. But start there. Because this church can be a place where people can walk in and see that we look different. That we act different. That there is something different here. Um, that, that we're alive. That our faith is alive. That we're not just saying and sharing the gospel. We're showing people the gospel. Um, and why am I telling you guys to get involved to do all this? It's not to make you feel guilty. It's not because, you know, other people don't like doing what they're doing. I'm sure Trista and Mark want to make coffee and do the ruler thing every single Sunday and don't want anybody else to do it. Um, I'm telling you that because we grow when we give our lives away. We grow. It pushes you towards Christ. It doesn't earn you points with Christ. Like, God's not like, oh, another point for Chris Tweed because he, like, set the chairs up. You know, like, you don't get points um, with God. But it does push you towards God. Have you felt stagnant at all? Have you been wanting to grow in Christ, wondering, like, how do I do that? Get involved. Give your life away. That's the best way to do it. The absolute best way. Matthew 16, 25, we'll wrap it with this. It says, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Um, that gets more true for me every single year. When I'm not really giving my life away, it's like, I'm like, what am I doing? But when I am able to give my life away, when I do get uncomfortable, that's when I find real life. Um, the lame man at the beginning of the story could have heard what Paul said, could have heard about Jesus and been like, that sounds great. I believe in that. And then Paul could have said, you're healed, stand up and go walk around. And he could have said, no, I'm going to stay right here. Does he technically believe in Jesus? Sure. He's not really doing what he's supposed to be doing. And there's no life in staying on the ground. He found life when he actually stood up and he started walking. I don't know, again, I don't, I don't know, like this is one of those things where I want, I have a lot of questions. I don't know if he like, did he become one of the disciples? Like, what did he do? But I know he found more life standing up and walking around than he did staying seated. Believe the gospel, share the gospel, and show the gospel. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this time. Thank you, Lord, for um, the opportunity we have to gather as a congregation. We know in the world that that's not true everywhere. Um, Lord, we are thankful that we can do that here. We are thankful that you have saved each and every one of us. We're thankful, Lord, that as we give our lives away and engage, Father, that we come to know you in a deeper and more real way. God, as we sacrifice and get uncomfortable, Lord, that, that you meet us there, and that's where we find you. Um, Lord, we are so thankful that you don't need us to do this stuff, but you want us to. God, we love you. Praising your son Jesus' holy name, amen.